Well, how do we apply what it is we just celebrated? I want you to imagine two rooms with me for a moment. One is the throne room of heaven. Now I want you to imagine you're, you're walking into the throne room of heaven and there is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you've got to convince Jesus, the Son, that it's worth it to leave pure pleasure, pure joy, pure harmony, to come to earth to experience betrayal, denial, and pain. What would you say, what arguments would you use, what statements would you make to try and convince Jesus that it's worth leaving paradise, leaving the penthouse to come to the outhouse? I'm not sure I'd have an argument that was that compelling. Rescuing me doesn't seem that compelling compared to the paradise of heaven. Now imagine you walk into another room. Now we're in a uh, prison cell in Egypt. Terrorists have taken over. They've lined up 20 Coptic Christians. They've got machetes up to their neck. And you've got to convince them that holding true to their faith in Christ not denying it is worth their life, their possessions, or even their family. What would you say? To convince them that the persecution they're facing is worth what they're going to receive by standing strong. I'm not sure I'd know what to say. But both stories are true. In fact, uh, the news report said that there were 20 Coptic Christians who held true to their faith were killed for their faith, the impact in that community, the impact in, in others taking care of their family, the, the impact all across the world as people heard their stories. But one of the startling things about the story is that there are only 20 names listed of those who gave their life to hold fast to their faith, and yet they counted 21 who were martyred that day. As they investigated the story, they found that in the middle of those 20 Coptic Christians was a Chidanian, so with the darker skin there from the country of Chad, he was one of the terrorists. He was so struck by their confidence in God, his grace, his eternity, that he actually stood in line and became one of the 20 because of the courage they had. And he said, as the terrorists came to him and asked him to renounce his new faith, he said, their God is my God. The book of Hebrews that we've been going through together is actually probably Paul writing and giving an explanation as to what it was that convinced God to leave the throne room to come to earth and die for us. And it's also written to Christians during the time of Roman persecution to say, why should you stay strong under severe persecution? Here's what it says in Hebrews 10, which sets up where we've been going for the last couple of weeks. You endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations. So bad stuff going on. Reproach, tribulation, spectacle. Partly while you were companions of those who were so treated. So they're hanging out with people who are being you know, crushed for the sake of their faith. And you had compassion on me when I was in chains, because I too was suffering from my faith, probably Paul says. And here's the secret. You joyfully accepted your suffering. You joyfully accepted people plundering your goods. Well, how could you joyfully endure suffering or joyfully endure the plundering of your goods? It says they knew something. Here was their secret. The whole time you were being plundered, the whole time you were being sacrificed, you knew that you had a better and more enduring possession in heaven. 
They were able to compare the sufferings of this world compared to the reward in the next. And that was their secret. And as Paul continues to develop this in Hebrews 11 today, he's going to show that we have a tendency to count the cost. Oh my goodness, the cost is so high. The cost is so difficult to to forgive. The cost is so difficult to give. The cost is so difficult to, to let go of bitterness. The cost is so high to lose your life. But Hebrews is going to tell us we're looking at the wrong thing. We need to stop looking at the cost instead of looking at what it's worth. Stop looking at the price tag and instead look at the appraisal of what you will receive for the cost. If I told you today that I had something to sell you for $100,000, you'd say, well, what is it? Right? You wouldn't just look at the cost. That's a lot of money. If I said, well, $100,000, I'm talking about Starbucks coffee. You'd be like, mm, okay, it's not, it's, not worth it. it's not that good. It's not that good. If I said, well, $100,000 for a house in Indian Hill, you're like, where do I sign? See, in one, you're focusing on the cost and the price tag. and the other, you're focused on the appraisal. And God is saying, what I have for you, what I'm offering you, if you could appraise my grace and appraise my reward and appraise what heaven is truly like, it would be worth any cost. And that's the secret to keeping your faith during challenging times. Knowing the appraisal of God's reward. He's going to show some real practical ways in which faith can reward you today. Some rewards come tomorrow. And some rewards don't come on this earth. They come in forever. And my hope is as we study this together that we will, one, understand how we can have a better life now by faith. Two, how we can leave a better legacy the way many of the folks in the Bible did. But also the Bible promises a better resurrection. A better one? We'll look at that today as well. It begins and says that if you by faith use faith in your life to grab hold of God's promises, God will use faith to unlock and give you a better life today. There are some benefits that happen even here and now as we choose to believe what he says even when it doesn't feel true. He gives an example. He starts every new example with the phrase by faith. By faith, which we've learned is confidence in God's promises, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. Now, Joshua didn't have to wait till he got to heaven to experience that. It wasn't his ancestors who experienced that. He got to have a better life now. He got to see God tear down fortified walls and, and places with giants. And you've got to think about how ridiculous the plan was at the time. Joshua, I want you to trust me. All right, what do you want me to do? Take your ram's horn, take the ark, and I want you to march around the mighty walled city of Jericho. And I want you to bring the ark with you, and I want you to, on the seventh day, circle seven times. I want you to get to the seventh time, and I want you to yell out, just nothing in particular, just yell, Ah! And I want you to blow the ram's horn. And I'll take care of the rest. Really? Really? Think how foolish he must have felt. Day one, day two, day three, seven times on day seven. But he said, by faith, when he felt like this isn't going to work, when he felt like this is embarrassing, when he felt like you got to be kidding, he put his confidence that what God says is true is more real than what I'm feeling right now. And through that, we know the account is that the walls did come down. God did hold his end of the bargain. God's invisible promises were more real than the walls of Jericho. 
And this isn't just fanciful thinking. This isn't just wishful thinking. The uh, tell and archaeological finds of Jericho have been found. And that's why this is reasonable faith. We put our confidence in what God's going to do in the future because of our confidence in what God did in the past. If you've ever seen this movie, it's on Netflix. If you haven't seen it, it's called The Patterns of Evidence, where they interview archaeologists who show that they have found evidence of the very location of Jericho where Joshua is able to experience the better life today because of his faith and confidence in God. I want to show you a quick clip of that just to give you a sense of how much we can root our confidence and the God who does mighty things in our lives today. Let's watch. The conquest began with the Israelites crossing the Jordan River. Joshua sent men to spy out the massively walled city of Jericho, and there they met a harlot named Rahab, who reported that all in the land had heard what God had done for the Israelites, and they were terrified. Rahav hid the spies and aided their escape to the mountains. What evidence do you see matching the conquest of Jericho? First of all, we're told that Jericho was fortified. When the archaeologists dug the city, particularly Kathleen Kenyon, when she did her work in the 50s, discovered that the tell that the city's built on was surrounded by a great earthen rampart. Excavators found that Jericho was protected by a brilliant defensive system. At its base was a stone retaining wall more than 15 feet high, with a defensive extension wall of mud bricks rising higher still. Beyond this was the rampart, a steep slope covered with a slick surface of white plaster, where attackers would have been exposed to arrows and sling stones from above. At the top of this rampart was the main city wall, also made of mud brick, this one more than 25 feet high and 10 feet thick. Imagine the dread and the desperate panic of the people of Jericho. Day after day for six days, the people of Israel are walking around their city with the Ark of the Covenant and the sounding of ram's horns. Then on the seventh day, they encircle the city seven times and the priests give a long blast on their horns. The people let loose with a mighty shout. The walls come tumbling down. Allowing the Israelites to climb up into the city, taking it and commencing the conquering of the land of Israel. Well, when the city met its end, uh, these mud brick walls collapsed and they actually uh, fell down to the base of the stone retaining wall. Kenyon describes it very uh, clearly and in detail in her excavation report. So again, this is rational faith, but you know, it didn't feel very rational at the moment. And many times the obstacles we have in our marriages, the obstacles we have in our life, we feel like this is insurmountable. And Joshua's reminder to us is that if we will put faith in God's way now, we can overcome those challenges because God will reward us for stepping out in faith. 
But he continues by talking about another woman from that story, another person, which is Rahab. And she too, by faith, the harlot Rahab, did not perish that day when the walls came crashing down with those who did not believe in God, when she had received the spies with peace. See, Joshua had sent in uh, two spies, and she decided to take those two spies, and instead of you know, turning them over to the authorities, she hid them because she believed in their God. Pretty amazing. If you don't remember the story from Joshua chapter 2, it says it this way. She came up to them. She brings them up onto the roof. Come on, guys. And she said to the men, listen, I know the Lord has given you this land and the city. How does she know that? It hasn't happened. She's believing the promises of God based on what she has heard. I know the Lord has given you the land and the terror of you has fallen on us. Oh, my goodness. You think we're a fortified city and you think we're, we're just tough? We are scared to death in here. I got a lot of people coming in and out of my room, if you know what I'm saying. And when they're coming in my room, they are terrified of what they've heard you and God's people have done. We have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea for you. And we heard about all the things he did to come out of Egypt. And so I, a Gentile, non-Hebrew harlot, want to put my faith in your God. And God invites everyone, no matter what your background, no matter what your nationality, no matter what your story, everyone can by faith be part of his story. In fact, sometimes it's helpful when you're reading the Bible to not just read verse by verse, but read chapter by chapter. Interesting little parallel here in, in Joshua. When you read in Joshua chapter 5, uh, Joshua stands before an angel of the Lord and he asks a question. He says, oh my goodness, are, are you for me or are you for my enemies? And the angel says, no. No, that, that's, are you for me or are you for my enemies? No, but as a commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. God's saying, I'm not on your side and I'm not on your enemy's side. I'm on God's side. And the question is, by faith, will you choose to be on God's side? And then he aligns the next two chapters of Joshua to show how you could be born a Hebrew but not choose to be on God's side. Or you could be born a, a, a pagan like Rahab or a Gentile and choose to be on God's side. Because right after he says God's not on your side, he's on his own side, the very next chapter shows us a woman, a Gentile, a harlot, who by faith puts her trust in God and she is rescued. Then the very next chapter tells the story of a Hebrew man named Achan who does not trust God because God says, when you get into Jericho, don't take any of that money. That money was used for terrible things. Trust me to provide for you. And Achan's like, well, I'll trust you, God, but there's a gold pile of gold right here. I think I'll trust you and I'll bury this in my house. And so Achan stole the bacon, as they say, and he hid it. And he and his family ultimately will perish because though he was part of God's community, he did not choose by faith to be on God's side. And what's amazing about this story is that Rahab, God so uses her life, not just for benefits now, she's rescued in her family, but also the legacy that leads us to the manger. Because the book of Matthew opens by saying, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And look at, the, look at his big name, the son of David. The son of Abraham. Oh, he's big. Abraham, Isaac, and Isaac, and Jacob. If you keep going down right in the middle, look whose name shows up. Rahab. She got benefits now by faith, but also a legacy later by faith. She will ultimately lead to Mary. And God is saying, no matter what you've done, no matter how bruised or abused or challenged you've been, no matter how checkered your past is, 
I can forgive. I can give peace. And in genealogies, you would never have a woman in a Jewish uh, genealogy. You would never have a foreigner in a Jewish genealogy in that time. And you would never have a prostitute. And God is showing my kingdom is open to everyone. My community is brand new. Everyone who by faith chooses to believe in me can come and find forgiveness and peace in me. So who's on God's side? Do you want that benefit now and the legacy later? He goes on in the passage and says, let me tell you about the legacy later. You can have a better legacy tomorrow. Which more shall I say? Now he sums up the whole Old Testament really sort of fast, rapid uh, motion. For the time would fail me to tell you about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and all the prophets, who through faith, there's our promise again, they subdued kingdoms, they worked righteousness, they obtained promises, they stopped the mouths of lion, they quenched the violence of fire, they escaped, escaped the edge of the sword, and out of their weakness of going through that suffering, they were made strong by God. They became valiant in battle. And they turned to flight the armies of the aliens or the foreigners. And women even received the dead back to life again. And they have a legacy, not of just what happened in their day, but we read their stories in the Bible and we say, if God could do that in their life, I'm going to trust he can do something in mine. And that passage filled with all kinds of great stuff, right? Battles and victories and, and overcoming. But before they overcame, there was some death before there was life. There was a war before there was victory. And I know for me, I often feel like I would love to have, and I think God wants for me, a convenient, comfortable life. I know it's not true, but I want it to be true. And I think the best way for God to make me the kind of person I need to be is to remove all suffering, all challenge from my life. And God shows how he uses challenge to work about his purposes. He uses our weakness so that we can be strong. So much so that back in Hebrews chapter 2, did you know that when Jesus left the throne room of heaven and came to earth, and he was in that manger, he was the perfect son of God. But did you know he's going to become more perfect? More perfect. God says that though he is perfect in the grid, in the, in the cradle, it's through the process of suffering on earth and suffering on the scourging post and suffering on the cross that he will be made more perfect. Look how he says it in Hebrews 2. For it was fitting for him, the one who made all things and by whom all things were made, to bring all of us to glory, to get us to heaven, to get us access to the new kingdom, to make the captain of our salvation, that's Jesus, to make him perfect through sufferings. The word perfect means to, to be more mature. That Christ's faith became more mature through sufferings. If the Son of God needed sufferings to become everything God had for him, why would you and I think that we don't deserve suffering? Or that we would be the exception to the rule? God used it to mature Jesus, and he used it to mature us as well. I think one of the challenges we have is that we live in a time in history where we don't really endure much suffering. We, we think that what we suffer is a big deal compared to what happened in the past. It's nothing. I had one of those this week, which just shows how trivial and superficial and shallow I am. But, but the, the example still plays out. 
Last year, about this time, my my uh, wife called, um, my daughter called me and said, "Hey, you're not going to go see The Force Awakens without me, Dad, are you?" Before I go home from college, I said, "Of course I am. I, for every time Star Wars has come out, I see it on the opening night. My, my whole life going back to the first episode." She said, "Oh, come on, Dad." I said, "Honey, I'll see it with you again. I will enjoy it. It will be like the first time, but I'm going to watch it on opening day." And uh, I didn't realize she really was. I thought she was harassing me. She was pretty disappointed. What a jerk father I am. So uh, about two months ago. I was visiting her in college, and she said, Now, Dad, you're not going to go see Rogue One without me, are you? Of course I am. I always see Star Wars on the... Da, 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 da. And so my wife pulled me aside. She said, I think this is a big deal to see her. I'm like, Star Wars? I mean, it's like I, I made movies with Star Wars, and this got the real Darth Vader back in it. We're like, we're... She's like, why don't you call her? So I, I texted Sierra. I said, Sierra, if this is really important to you, to show that... You're important to me. I will wait until you get home on Christmas Day to go see Star Wars. She said, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. So, but if you and your boyfriend want to go see it on Thursday, I'm off the hook. So on Thursday, I texted her. I said, hey, did you guys go see Star Wars? She said, no, I'm waiting to see it with you. Oh, good. <laughs> so this last Thursday when it came out, we had a babysitter. My wife was shopping uh, for Christmas gifts. I went shopping for Christmas gifts, which means I was unaccountable. There was no one there, no one would know, and I happened to be shopping at Target so I could see the movie theater. I could see people driving to the 7 o'clock show. No one's going to know. And I texted my daughter, honey, I can see the theater from here, and I'm not going to see Star Wars without you. She sends back, Dad, that's great self-control. I texted her back, I have no self-control, just love for my daughter. To which she texts back, aww. And in a very trivial, shallow way, that is what happens. You have to overpower one desire with a greater one. As much as I want a comfortable life, I want to know God more. As much as I want X, I want a deeper relationship with God more. So it's not like we're, we're masochists who enjoy suffering. We just want the benefit of what God brings in our life. That's, that's what he's saying here. And he gives the third thing. Say, sometimes you're not going to get the benefit now or even here on earth tomorrow. The real benefit you're going to get in faith is going to come in forever and everlasting. Here's how he says it. He says, God will use faith to give you a better resurrection forever. He went from a a series of people from the Bible who by faith had good things happen while on earth to a series of people who didn't get the blessings on earth. Others, that's his hinge change mood, were tortured. And they did not accept deliverance. They did not recant so that they would be out of the torture. That they might obtain, and this is what they did while they were in that moment, they said, I'm being tortured, but I'm going to obtain a better resurrection because of this. What is a better resurrection? First, I'm not sure. But the Bible says it all the time. That what happens here on earth carries over to eternity. Jesus says you can have a little reward now or a lot of reward later. When you pray, when you fast, when you give. You can do it so people see and give you accolades here. And that's fine. You'll have your reward. It'll be small. Or you can have great reward later. Blessed are those who persecute you. For great is your reward. That in some way, 
The intimacy we have with God that comes through suffering, that comes through challenges, that comes through adversity now, that carries over into eternity. That you have a better resurrection, a better, more intimate experience in heaven than folks who did not have that experience, who did not serve, who did not give, who did not prioritize intimacy with Christ. Paul will tell us that some people get into heaven by the skin of their teeth, just escaping fire. But others will come before their heavenly Father and hear, Well done, my good and faithful servant. And remember, we learned that faith in Hebrews 11.6 is the confidence that God is and that He rewards those who diligently seek Him. There's nothing wrong, wrong with wanting God's reward. But we also, this is not a works-based, ego-based trip. We know that who God rewards is the most humble. Who God rewards is the most other-centered. Who God rewards is the most lavishly generous. Who God rewards is those who don't want it to be more and more about me. The way to be up in the kingdom is to be down. The way to find your life is to give it. The way to discover your life is to lose it. And the more we discover that here on this side of eternity, the more it reflects in our experience in in eternity as well. Still others had trial of mockings and scourging. Yes, of, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute and afflicted because everything had been stolen. They were tormented. And the world was not worthy of them. And you know why our world was not worthy of them? Because the whole time they went through all this challenge and difficulty, they were focused on the other world. That's how they did it. The more obsessed they became with the real world and the real home, the more they can endure difficulty in this world. That was their secret. And though they wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth, they knew they had something better. What if every time you face difficulty something you didn't feel like you could overcome. What if instead of having that cynical attitude we all have, I know I have, it goes, here we go again. These things always come in threes. Here we go again. What if instead by faith we said, God, here we grow again. God, here we grow again. Use this circumstance to deepen my intimacy with you, my understanding of your patience, of your kindness, and of your long-suffering. And God, if I don't get the reward now, I'm going to still choose by faith to do and obey what you've asked me to do because in some way that I don't fully understand, there's a greater reward and a better resurrection to come. That's how they end the section of Hebrews 11. And all of these having obtained a good testimony through faith. That's one of the things they got a good testimony, an intimate relationship with God through faith. But they did not receive the promise fully while they were on earth. It came in forever. God, having provided something better for them, better than the promise now, was something later, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. And, and the, what God was doing in their life is still being worked out in our life, is what he's saying here. God wants you to have this now. But you and I are never going to serve or give or prioritize or suffer well if we keep looking at the price tag of how much it costs. We've got to look at the appraisal of what that better resurrection is, what heaven is like, and really appraise that an intimate relationship with God is worth whatever it takes to get there. And everything about that sounds pretty until I think about it happening to me. Then I'm like, ah, 
by faith do we appraise intimacy with God over our comfortable, convenient life? Are we looking at the price tag? Are we looking at the appraisal? And Hebrews 11 will then jump into Hebrews 12 with a final application and say, if this is true, guys, if what this hall of faith did was true, then guys, give everything you have to the one who gave everything for you. And by doing so, you'll become everything you were meant to be. Do you want to be everything you're meant to be? Not if it means suffering. If you really want to be everything you're meant to be, then in this life, give everything you are to the one who gave everything for you so you can become everything you were meant to be. Because we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses who did this, it says in Romans 12, in Hebrews 12. Lay aside every weight that would hold you back from knowing God. Throw off the sin that so easily entangles you or ensnares you. Run, run, run with endurance. The race that is set before you. And here's the secret. Look unto Jesus, the one who gave everything for you. So that you can run and give everything you have. So you can serve and give everything you have. So you can be lavishly generous, give everything you have. Looking to the one who gave everything to you. And through that you will become everything you were meant to be. See, Jesus is the author. He's the finisher of our faith. Who had joy set before him endured the cross. While Jesus was on that cross with nails pounded into his wrists and pounded into his feet. A crown of thorns upon his head, having his body lashed and shredded by the scourging post. How did he endure that pain? With joy. With joy set before him. He endured the cross because he compared the pain he was going through to the joy of knowing you. To have a friendship with those sitting here in 2016. To forgive them of what they've done. To give them entrance into my kingdom. It is worth it. The scourging was worth it. God turning his back on me is worth it. Having the wrath of God poured out on all betrayal and all evil upon him in that moment was worth it. For the joy set before him of wanting to know you and being friendship with you, not to get you into religious activity, to know you, to be loved by you, to know that you would know how much he loves you. He endured the cross. He despised the shame because it was shameful to be crucified. And God rewarded him by seating him on the right hand of God. What does it mean this year for you to give everything you have? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it means recommitting to something you've given up on. Maybe it means by faith choosing to to let go of bitterness or anger. Maybe it means some area of your life that you feel like, I've given up that dream. God's saying, by faith, I want you to keep hope. Maybe it's financially. Saying, God, you know, I've never really taken serious the idea of giving to you, but God, you are challenging me. Every year we have folks coming up and saying, you know what, you guys don't make a big deal about giving, but the more I've gotten to know how generous God is, the more I want to give. I want to give to God's bride, the church. I want to give to the widow. I want to give to the needy. I'm finding myself interested in going on, on, on trips to, to help people who are, who are forgotten. 
Give everything you have and say, God, everything I have is yours. What would you have me do? Who would you have me serve? How might you use this circumstance in my life, the inconvenience of my life, to be more like you? I'll invite the band to come out and I'll tell you one final story. I uh, I remember uh, when we adopted Quinn seven years ago and I was like, oh my goodness, just having a third child, that's a big challenge to our convenient, comfortable lifestyle of being empty nesters at 44 and then we had a child and we found he had autism. Like, oh, my goodness, God, okay, I think we've sacrificed enough. This is more than we could handle. We found out he was blind, more than we can handle. And then we're remodeling our house seemingly every month, changing and fixing stuff so he'll still be alive. God, I think we've done enough. I remember a couple of years ago, uh, the birth mother, Jackie, called my wife and said, hey, uh, I'm in a domestic violence situation. Could you help us? Beth's like, can we help her? I'm like, I think we've done enough. She's like, no, I think God's asking us to do this. Here we grow again. And so we helped her out of that situation and we tried to find her a place, but there was sort of a gap in a couple of days. I think she should stay with us. I think we've done enough. Now, just a couple of days, she's got a child and she's pregnant and we, we, Quinn doesn't do well with other kids. And she was in our house for several days and it was utter and complete chaos. It was not like, oh, I felt so good about that generosity and serving. No, it was chaos, exhaustion. And we invited her to one of our holiday services. She sat right over here in the third row. And she heard us talk about a loving, generous, forgiving God who serves us. And after that service, she said, you know what? I want to know a God like that. And I've seen it in you. Because you keep chasing after me despite the decisions I've made over the last seven years. I in no way enjoyed the process. But I don't remember much about that holiday season. I don't remember what I gave. I don't remember what I got. But I do remember how God used that experience to grow my faith in Him and to stretch me spiritually. You want to know how to grow? Fix your eyes on Jesus. As this band plays this next song, I just want you to ask God, God, where do you want to grow me in service, generosity, and surrender? Father, will you deliver us and deliver us from the idols. Deliver us from thinking a comfortable and convenient life is what this is all about. Instead, invite us into the lavish eternal life of serving and giving and prioritizing others, finding our life through losing it. Father, we fix our eyes on Jesus, for you are the author and finisher of our faith. Grow us. And remind us that your promises are more real than our feelings, more real than our circumstances, that we can have confidence in what you've done and what you will do in the future. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being here this morning. If you do, you're going to need tickets um, for the Christmas Eve service. If you don't have those yet, they're out by the fireplace. There's still some available, but you do need those. They're complimentary. But we want to make sure everybody has a seat for our eight Christmas Eve services. We'll see you all next Saturday.